0: Good morning, I'd also like to welcome you to First Methodist Mansfield, those here uh, down here in the well in the chapel and those upstairs in the well cafe up in the loft. Uh, It's a good day to be in church. My name is Johnny Brower. I serve as one of your pastors here at First Methodist, and I just love, I love being in church. I love singing with all of y'all, like being here. So uh, Pastor David, uh, who normally preaches this service, is in England right now with his wife Stephanie. Uh, He's there with some pastors and their spouses of some of the largest United Methodist churches in the nation, uh, a group of which we are a part, um, and they are there um, taking what's called the John Wesley Tour. So for those of you who know, John Wesley uh, became the founder of the United Methodist denomination, um, uh, was from England, and so you can go around and see kind of all the sites in there and stuff, and Uh, learn some of the things that he learned and uh, be in some of the places that he was. It's kind of a cool thing. Uh, He's there. So I pray uh, that you will be in prayer with me uh, for him and Stephanie and and all the pastors that are there as they learn and grow together uh, and also as they travel safely back to us. He will be back next week preaching our new series that will be beginning called Revival. So I hope you're all here next week to welcome him back uh, and hear that great message. So if we're starting a new series next week, that must mean we are ending a series this week. We are wrapping up our series called Faith in Hard Times. It's been quite a journey through this little book of Habakkuk over the last five weeks where we've been asking this question, what does it mean to be faithful in the midst of hard times? Our scripture for today is in Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, verse 3, sorry, verse 17 through 18. If you're going to use one of the blue Bibles here in the the chapel that are underneath the seat, um, it's going to be on 1466 upstairs in the loft. It's on a cart, on a a rack in the back of the room, Uh, 1466 is the page number where you can find that. Habakkuk really has been the perfect vessel through which to explore this theme because Habakkuk was a prophet that lived and wrote in a particularly hard time, but also because packed within these three short chapters of this book are some incredible truths for us as we seek uh, what it means to be faithful in the midst of hard times. Week one, Pastor David started uh, our journey by talking about the nature of faith. That if we want to know what it means to be faithful in the midst of hard times, we must first have a clear understanding of the word faith. Because hard times will stir up really hard questions in us. We're going to talk about one of them uh, today. Uh, And faith is not simply having the answers to those questions. What it means to be faithful isn't simply having all the right answers or, or simply assenting to a certain set of beliefs. But faith is like trust. It's the ability to hold intention, those hard questions that we have, that are stirred up by those hard times, hold that intention with a trust in a God that is good, and a God that is loving, and a God that is for us. That's what it means to be faithful. We too, Pastor David, continued by tackling probably the hardest, oldest, and most frequently asked question that people of faith have been asking, and that is, if God is good, then why do bad things happen? If God is good, then why do bad things happen? This is one of the most important messages, I think, for any Christian uh, to hear. And one that we should hear over and over and over again to compl- uh, to continually remind us of who God is, who God isn't, and who God is to us. Uh, even before... Um, Even before you heard it and you had these questions, you you wrestled with this. This this tends to be the biggest faith tester for people. So I love that David tackled that and and, and, uh, talked about it a little bit. So I hope, if nothing else, you go back to week two and begin there. Because some of you are going through hard times. Some of you will go through hard times. But also, if you're a Christian, this is going to be a question that is asked of you at some point in time if it hasn't already been asked. I remember the first time it was asked to me. I just stared at them blankly like, uh, that's a really good question because I knew in my heart, I knew in my heart what I believed, but I had no way of articulating it. And David articulated it very well. So I hope you go back and listen because I know some of you right now miss that message and you're thinking, man, I would really love to hear that. Go back and hear that one. Uh, it is a great one. Uh, week three, Pastor Mike shared with you the importance of remaining focused on God in the midst of hard times, because hard times have a tendency to draw us inward, to isolate us, uh, to to um, to focus us only on ourselves and our own problems. And in hard times, more than ever, we must be sure to reorient ourselves towards God. Last week, I shared with you the first of two things that I believe are the most needed. And the scarcest during hard times. Things that we desperately need but are really hard to find. And the first of which was strength. We talked about strength last week. We noticed that in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19, the prophet places his faith not in his own strength to overcome the hard times in which he finds himself, but in God's strength. He knows that God is bigger than any danger or hard time that he faces. And it is that strength that gives him and gives us the courage to to face our hardest times. So if you've missed any of these uh, and you'd like to hear them, you can find them on our website. You can also find them on our iTunes podcast. I pray that you download and listen to those, share them with people you think that may need them. This week, as we wrap up, we're going to talk about the second thing that I mentioned last, last week. Another thing that is scarce in the midst of hard times but is so desperately needed, and that is joy. Joy. Now, there's a pretty simple answer to this, I think, where we could just end the sermon now, we could get out of here early and go to lunch, but unfortunately, I'm not going to do that. but the the easy answer here is that joy is a choice, right? You choose joy. joy doesn't just happen to you. It's something that you choose. There are people, do you know that there are people that can find joy in the midst of rush hour traffic? I know many of us when we find ourselves in rush hour traffic, we're just beating our brains out. But there are people that are able to calm themselves and find joy even in the midst of crazy traffic joy is a choice we can choose joy in the midst of hard times and often we can choose that because we know that the hard times are temporary we can be joyful because we know it's going to end eventually right these hard times are temporary but what if they aren't what if those hard times don't end I know what happens what happens when the justice we've so desperately wanted so desperately prayed for doesn't come in our lifetime what happens when the healing that we've prayed so earnestly for for ourselves or for somebody that we love doesn't happen what happens when the hard times don't end what happens when our prayers Go unanswered. What does it mean to be faithful then? How do we find joy in a situation like that where logically we should find despair and hopelessness and want to give up? I want to be honest with you all up front uh, that I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I hope that doesn't frustrate you too much. But I just don't know. I know I'm the one up here, I've been the one asked to give the sermon, I'm the one with the podium and the the notes, and I spent all this time, and you showed up, and I'm supposed to have the answers. It's like my job to have these answers, but I don't. Some questions are really hard. Some questions, I believe, might not have an answer until we get to ask God personally. We as pastors don't always know. We just don't know some things. So today, this is what I want to do. I want to invite you into this question with me. I want to invite you into this process as I go through these questions and as I process them myself. I want, you, I want to invite you to wonder with me what it means to have joy in the midst of hard times that don't end and What does it mean to trust and have faith when prayers go unanswered? I want to do that. I want to share with you um, a few theological understandings. I want to share with you a few examples from Scripture and from, from, our, uh, from life outside of Scripture um, that speak uh, to this question. And then I want to share with you at the end some things that I do know. Some things that I do know that when I find myself with questions that I cannot answer, that keep me grounded, that keep me trusting God, that keep me faithful while I continue to seek those answers. So the first thing I want to do quickly is address a couple of theological understandings that come up in the midst of unanswered prayer or in the midst of hard times that I want to address quickly. And the first one is this. Sometimes when there's unanswered prayer or we have questions that we don't have the answers to or hard times won't end, somebody might say something to us like, well, God's ways are just higher than our ways. You've probably heard this before. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I believe this to be absolutely true. This is 100% true. It's a biblical thing. We read it in Scripture, uh, in Isaiah. Uh, Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Many people talk about how God uh, is, is higher, than is, his ways are higher than ours. God is infinite and we are not. And it would be ludicrous to expect or even demand that we comprehend all that is God. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But we have to be careful with this truth because this truth is not meant to be dismissive, which is how it's often used. When people have questions or are asking questions and they're not getting the right answers or somebody doesn't have the answer, they often respond with, well, God's ways are higher than our ways as a way of ending the conversation and getting you to stop asking questions. The truth that God's ways are higher than our ways was never meant to be dismissive. It should not keep us from asking questions. It should only serve to keep us humble when we think we've found the answer. I'm going to say that one more time because that's pretty deep. God's ways are higher than our ways. That should not be used to keep us from asking questions, but it should be used simply to keep us humble when we think we have found the answer. It should also not serve as an explanation for the hard times that you might, fa- might face. Because when you do that, when you're in the midst of a hard time, you're like, why is this happening to me? Right? Why, why would this thing happen to me? Why would this person get sick? What did they do to deserve this? And somebody would say something like, God's ways are just higher than our ways. We cannot understand. What that does is that places the blame on God. And I will tell you something that I don't believe. I don't believe that God causes car wrecks. I don't believe that God gives you cancer. I don't believe that God starts wars. And though some of these things that happen in our life are beyond our ability to comprehend and explain, I do believe that God is not the culprit. Now, if this has kind of stirred something up in you and you're like, oh, my gosh, like, I, I don't know what to think about this. I, I really invite you to go back to week two. This is exactly what Pastor David preached. And I, I want you to hear that message from him because I know that this, this can awaken some deep questions in our life. Hard times bring about hard questions. And I want you to explore those. And Pastor David did it so eloquently. So please go back and listen to that. So I won't go back over that uh, now. The other thing is this, when we're in the midst of unanswered prayer, in the the midst of hard times that won't end, you might have heard somebody say, well, if you just had enough faith, if you just had enough faith, you could be healed. If you just had enough faith, you could find your new job. If you just had enough faith, your marriage would be fine. If you've ever been told this, I want to, on behalf of every pastor in the history of the world, I want to apologize to you. I want to apologize to you. I understand where this belief comes from. You can find in Scripture where somebody would base this theological understanding. Matthew chapter 21, verse 21 and 22, you find uh, Jesus addressing his disciples, and he's talking about prayer, and he's talking about God answering prayer. And he says that if you have enough faith when you pray, even that mountain can be cast into the sea. If you pray and you have faith and you do not doubt, whatever you ask for will be given to you. Now that surely sounds like if you pray with enough faith, if your faith is big enough when you pray, that you will get whatever it is you ask for, including healing. But what I think, what I do believe, is that to minimize what Jesus is saying here, to an explanation as to why your hard times won't end, to minimize what Jesus is saying as an answer to uh, why your prayers won't Go unanswered is a gross misunderstanding and largely ignores biblical context surrounding this statement. See, what Jesus is saying here to to the disciples is a literary tool called hyperbole. You've probably heard of that before, meaning a purposeful exaggeration in order to make a point. Jesus, Jesus often used hyperbole in his teachings. This wasn't the only time. You might remember if you spent any time in Scripture where Jesus says, if your eyes cause you to sin, then you need to gouge them out. Right? If your hands cause you to sin, you need to cut them off. Anybody heard that one before? I don't see any hands. Maybe maybe we're all sinners. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus never meant for you to literally do those things. But what Jesus wanted to do was to make a very strong point about the danger of sin and how important it is for us to run from sin. Same here. Jesus wasn't asking you to pray for a mountain to be cast into the sea. What Jesus is talking about here is the strength of prayer and and the ability of God to do what we think is impossible. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He did want to open our eyes up to new possibilities. He did want us to see God as uh, as some as, as as somebody who could do the impossible, th- things that we thought Impossible. But here's the problem with that statement when used, when answered prayer. When I tell you that your prayers aren't answered because your faith isn't big enough, the problem with making the bigness of our faith the reason for our healing is just that. It relies on us and not God. Last week I mentioned this, that, the, that our strength comes not from the bigness of our faith, but from the bigness of the God in whom we put our faith. I want to use this uh, Jesus as an example uh, here whenever we we look at this and and I know I've said some stuff that probably stirred something up in you and I want you to know that faith is important and God and Jesus they are healers but I want you to know that this statement can be harmful here's and here's how we can test this with Jesus himself Jesus nears the end of his life right he's been arrested or not arrested yet he's been betrayed he's about to be arrested and he's in the garden right and he's praying Because what's about to happen to him is terrifying. He's terrified. And he goes to the garden and down his knees all by himself in the darkness. He prays and weeps to God his Father. And he says, God, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. God, I want to do your will. But if there is any other way that you can conceive of, please don't make me do this. And yet Jesus is arrested and crucified. Did Jesus not have enough faith? Did Jesus doubt God's ability? I don't think so. Jesus, full of faith, with no doubt, prayed in earnesty to not have to do what he did. And yet he still had to do it. We look throughout Scripture, and we'll see this to be true, that God's faithfulness and God's work in the world often extends beyond the lifetime of those that pray for God to intervene. We look at Moses that through faith delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And over and over again, Moses puts his faith in God, even as the people that he is leading do not, often fail. And yet, Moses never makes it out of the desert. Moses never makes it into the promised land, a place that he yearned for, a place that he prayed for, a place that he was leading people to. He only gets to see the promised land from the top of a mountain, but he never gets to set foot in that place. Did Moses lack faith? I don't think so. Paul, in the New Testament, the disciples, and many others uh, who would be considered faithful people, experienced hard times that did not end before their lifetime was, was done. Did they not have enough faith. I think it's tempting for us to come up with an answer when we have no answers. Because that's the age we live in, right? When the answer for any question that we may have is simply a Google search away, we become addicted to answers. We hate ambiguity. We don't like mystery. We don't like not knowing. You ever had a friend that knew something and they, know, they told you that they knew something, but they wouldn't tell you what that something is and it just infuriated you? We like to know. We want to know the answers. We hate ambiguity. So when we pray and we pray and we pray for God to intervene and it doesn't happen, the easiest answer for us to come up with was that we just lack the faith for God to listen to us. We just lack the faith for God to listen. And as hurtful and as harmful and as damaging as that can be, we say it and we often believe it. Because it's better than saying we don't know. It's better than having no answer at all. It's better than ambiguity, and it's better than mystery. So what does Habakkuk have to teach us about all of this? We've based this whole, this whole series on the book of Habakkuk. Where, where does Habakkuk fit into this? Well, this... friends is where all that historical context comes in handy so if any of you have been bored throughout that here's where it's important it's something that you wouldn't know otherwise just reading the scriptures, just the the three chapters of Habakkuk but knowing the historical context really brings this last chapter to life so if you remember Habakkuk lived in the seventh century BC right he lived in the southern kingdom of Judah Habakkuk was a Jew and he was a prophet And they lived what was in the promised land. Now, a couple centuries before uh, uh, Habakkuk was alive, uh, Israel was one nation, right? It was under King David. It was under King Solomon. But after King Solomon, the nation split in two. There was the northern kingdom that still went by the name Israel. And there was the southern kingdom that was much larger that went by the name Judah. Now, in the 8th century B.C., which is before Habakkuk, B.C. goes backwards. Uh, So in the 8th century B.C., the northern kingdom was invaded and taken over by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom, later on in the 6th century B.C., after Habakkuk, uh, the Babylonians had fully taken over the southern kingdom of Judah. So in the 7th century, when Habakkuk's alive, he sees that the northern kingdom has been taken over by the Assyrians and that the uh, Babylonians are threatening. And Habakkuk lives in this time where he lives in this land that he believes God had gifted to them. He believes that he is a part of a people that God has chosen to be holy. And so this land and these people are meant to live and glorify God, to attest to God's glory throughout the earth. And yet, this nation has been split in two. The government is corrupt. The northern kingdom has been taken over. And the Babylonians are threatening. Actually, in Habakkuk's lifetime, in fact, they're, they're already, the Babylonians had already begun to in, uh, infiltrate the country, the southern kingdom of Judah, and started deporting many of the people that lived there. Many of the Jews that lived there were sending them out of the land that they had come to. So Habakkuk's looking around at a giant mess of a situation. And everything that he had been taught and grown up to believe about God and himself and the land in which he lived was not turning out. It was not happening that way. And God and Habakkuk have this dialogue in the first two chapters of this book where Habakkuk just explodes on God, all this anger and anxiety and, and fear. And then they go back and forth in this dialogue where God is constantly reminding Habakkuk of who God is, that God is eternal. God has been around long before you, Habakkuk, and I'll be, along, uh, I'll be around long after you. Habakkuk, I'm continually at work. If you read chapter 2, you can see where God talks about how evil constantly is undermined. And even though they might succeed temporarily, they always are destroyed. God is talking about a force of justice and of restoration that is at work in the world, that will always be at work in the world, that has been at work long before Habakkuk, will be at work long after Habakkuk. And Habakkuk hears that and trusts that. So in chapter 3 Habakkuk prays. This beautiful prayer and it begins here verse 2 of chapter 3 it says Lord I have heard of your fame I stand in awe of your deeds Lord repeat them in our day in our time make them known. What Habakkuk is saying is like yeah you told me all that stuff and I've heard all that stuff before God I've read of your glory and of your fame. And what I'm asking of you God what I'm asking of you, God, is as these, times are, uh, as these hard times are here and as they are probably going to get worse, I want, I want that fame that I've heard of, I want those deeds that I've heard of, I want them present now. I want to see them now, God. Habakkuk knows the size and the scope of God's work. He's been reminded through the dialogue with God. Habakkuk knows that God is big enough to deliver, and yet what we know From historical context, is that Habakkuk dies long before that prayer is answered. Habakkuk dies long before that prayer is ever answered. I wonder how many days Habakkuk woke up praying that, hoping it would happen that day. That's what makes this prayer so remarkable to me. That the hard times don't end for Habakkuk. It's actually several decades after Habakkuk's life uh, that the Persians come with uh, King Cyrus as the king of the Persians come and defeat the Babylonians and liberate the Jews let him, letting them come back into their land and rebuild their temple. Several decades after Habakkuk died. hard times don't end for Habakkuk. The oppression, the injustice, the suffering, all that, that he prayed that would end didn't end before he died and yet he prays this prayer. He prays this prayer for the majority of the prayer, praising God for the work that God has done throughout history, uh, throughout time, that he has heard of, this fame that he has heard of, asking God to act now. And then you get to verse 17, which is where we begin our scripture um, for today. Verse 17, Habakkuk prays this at the end of the prayer. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk knows times might get worse. He might have even a feeling that his prayer might not be, he might not see his prayer answered. He looks around and sees devastation, no food, but that word yet, yet, in spite of all that, even though I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. The question of whether or not it might be possible for people to live by faith when nothing is going right. The question of whether or not it might be possible for people uh, to live by faith when there are no signs that it's going to get better. This is answered for Habakkuk in a very personal way by the nearness of God. By the nearness of God, Habakkuk knows that he can be faithful in the midst of the hardest times. Because for Habakkuk, there's a joy in knowing God and a peace in belonging God. To God, a God that has existed long before him and will exist long after him. In fact, if you read chapter 3, you will find that the way this prayer is constructed uh, is very similar to a prayer uh, that King David prayed, a song that he constructed uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 22. You'll find it there. You'll also find it repeated in Psalm 18. It's a prayer, a, a praise song of victory after God was with him in battle, and they won that battle. In fact, the verse that we looked at last week, which is how Habakkuk ends, the the very last thing Habakkuk says about, the Lord is my strength, the Lord gives me feet like a deer to climb upon the heights. Remember that? We talked about that last week. That is actually taken verbatim out of King David's song of victory and praise. Now imagine that with me as Habakkuk constructs this, knowing the tales of God uh, a victorious god that is with his people as they as people seek to oppress them as seek to, uh, people seek to invade them and and Habakkuk calls upon those stories that he knows about and begins to pray as David prayed even using some of the exact same language a song of victory in the midst of great defeat see for for Habakkuk uh, he come, when he comes face to face with his finitude, he is reminded that God is infinite. Let me put that more simply. For Habakkuk, as he comes face to face with his own limitations, when he comes face to face with his vulnerability, with his lack of control, with his smallness, he is reminded of God's Limitlessness of God's strength, he's reminded of God's sovereignty, of God's bigness, and Habakkuk is able to rejoice in the midst of great suffering. That even though things may get worse, he knows that God has been, God is, and God will forever be working for the good of all creation. Habakkuk knows that and trusts that, and that brings Habakkuk joy even in the midst of great suffering. A a more recent example would be this. On April 3rd, 1968, at a church in Memphis, Tennessee, people were gathering to hear somebody speak. It was a rally in the midst of the civil rights movements. Uh, Actually, at this time, in this place, there was a sanitation workers' uh, strike, a peaceful protest going on. And in attendance was Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, Dr. King was not actually scheduled to speak at this rally. But as people gathered at the church and it became packed, so many people came. Somebody went and alerted Dr. King and told him about that. And then he felt obligated to say something. He felt it was necessary since so many people had showed up to at least get up and say something. And when he did, he delivered what what might be second only to his dream speech. One of his best speeches he ever gave. It became known as the mountaintop speech. And it became kind of eerily uh, coincidental in hindsight, as in this speech, he talked more about the finality of life than he ever had before. He talked, about more, he talked more about God's call on his life and what might happen after his life than he ever had before. So I want to read for you now how he ends that speech. It says this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and i don't mind like anybody i would like to live a long life longevity has its place but i'm not concerned about that now i just want to do god's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and i've looked over and i've seen the promised land i may not get there with you but i want you to know tonight that as we that we as a people will get to the promised land so i'm happy tonight I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, I can't deliver that nearly as passionately as Dr. King can. But you can go online. You can find that speech. You can listen to it. You can actually watch it. I I highly recommend, if you've never heard it, to do so. And I love how Dr. King talks about the calling on his life and the longing and the prayers that he has to see this calling fulfilled. All the prayers that he has prayed about equality to see them fulfilled. But he also understands, he also understands that he might not. But what he trusts is that this call that God has placed on his life, that it will be carried on even if his life is over. That God will continue to work through people that care about this, people that hear God's call. That God will continue to move and work in the world even if Dr. King's not around to see it. So he says that he's happy and he's not fearing any man. He's not worried about anything because he has seen the glory of God. That was April 3rd on the evening, the evening of April 4th at 6 p.m. 1968 at the Lorraine Motel. Dr. King was fatally shot and killed. Those in in attendance of the church that night had no way of knowing they were listening to Dr. King's last speech. But Dr. King knew that even though he may not see his prayers answered. That God was going to continue to work in and through the people that had committed themselves to the call that God had placed on their life. That God was going to continue to work in the world for restoration and justice. And that brought him joy even in the midst of of fear. In a time when he should be greatly afraid, he found joy. I don't know why some prayers go unanswered. I don't know why for some people hard times do not end. I don't know that and I don't know how I'm going to handle that if that time comes in my life. But I do know, I do know some things about God that keep me grounded and focused on him. That even in the midst of really hard questions that challenge my faith, remember we talked about that tension, that really pull on me, that really challenge my faith. Things that continually draw me back to God. That bring me joy in who God is and who who I am and what God has called me to be. And I want to share those five things with you. And hopefully that they can bring you comfort in a time when you desperately need it. That can bring joy when joy is scarce in your life. And it's this, no matter what, I can rejoice because my God is the creator of all things and he loves his creation. God loves the dirt and and the grass and the trees and the the clouds and the squirrels and the birds and God loves me and you. Impossibly. God loves us so much. God is the creator of all things and he loves his creation. Number two is this, I can rejoice because my God restores all things. That's what God's about, is restoring, healing. It's a force that's been at work in this world long before me. It'll be at work long after me. And it's at work right now because I do see it every day. I see lives restored. I see families restored. I see spirits and souls healed and restored. I see God working now. God is a God of restoration. Number three, God is closer than our breath. Even in our darkest moments, even in our deepest doubts and our greatest despair, even when I don't see him, even when I don't feel him, God is close. God is near me because God loves me. Number four, God suffers with us. When our hearts break, God's heart breaks see this over and over again in scripture we especially see this with Jesus that as Jesus comes across people uh, Jesus encounters death or Jesus comes across people that are grieving Jesus grieves with them even weeps with them in the midst of grief and the last thing is this I can rejoice because my God has given us to one another as agents of his love grace and healing God does most of his work through each and every one of us, and I know that in the midst of hard times, that there are people that love me, that care about me, that will share grace with me, that will pray for me, that will comfort me, and I know I've called to be the same thing, even though people may not have answers for why there are hard times there, maybe I can be that answer. Maybe I can be that agent of love and grace and healing in their life. And those are the things that bring me joy. Even when my prayers are unanswered. Even when I wonder why. And even when I don't know. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your work in this place as we have come to sing praises to your name. We exhaust our lungs and our lips with songs of praise that exalt your name and your glory, God. We also admit that sometimes we don't know why we're singing. Sometimes our strength is gone. Sometimes we feel like hope is lost and we want to give up. And even in those moments, God, when we don't know why we're singing, we still sing because we know you and you know us because we love you and you love us because we have seen your work in this world, God. We know your works throughout history and we know your works to come. God, that you are with us. You are in us. You are all around us, God. You go before us and after us. You are everlasting and ever loving. And we thank you. It's in your name we pray.